It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is uh, session number 11. Sounds funny for me to call it a session, but it's an episode uh, in my series, Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America, which is covering a period of time in American history from 1914 to 1974. And it's a convulsive time that is going to create a climate for the world in which we live today. And a lot of the way we think and are reasoning today in our culture seem to have stemmed out of this dynamic time period. And it's actually uh, sort of a hard thing for me to go into and stare at this time period because for many of us, we like to sort of whitewash uh, whether it's our lives or our history. Like I'm a big fan of America. I'm a big fan of our constitution. I'm a big fan of our history. And so I would prefer to look at the high points instead of some of the low points, but sometimes it's important to recognize our low points so that we can better understand maybe how we can heal in some of our areas of breakdown. And we do have some of those in our culture. We can stare at our culture and just say, it's the liberals that have taken over our culture and look what they've done to it. When it's sort of a composite work, the church has also participated in where we're at today, and sometimes it's through veering off of the narrow way and beginning to emphasize things that actually aren't what the Spirit of God would want to emphasize. And as you've seen in some of the previous episodes, if you've gone through those, you recognize that those that call themselves Christians have participated in some of the Uh, most terrible things in our history. And so you can understand why there can be a backlash uh, towards things like Christianity, if that's what Christianity was. And it's sort of hard for us to stare at those things and go, dear Lord, uh, what were they thinking? And it's precisely what I want the Spirit of God to touch us in today is, Lord, is there anything in me that is hindering my relationship with you? Is there anything in me that is hindering my revelation of you to this generation? I don't want to be blind like they were. Lord Jesus, give me eyes to see. So this is uh, romanticizing Dillinger. Uh, and so we're, we're in that gangster era as we're, we headed into the 1920s, which was called the Roaring Twenties, and now we transitioned into the 30s, known as the Dirty Thirties, uh, because of the Dust Bowl and the Depression. It's, it is a rather depressing 10-year uh, period of time in our history. It is interesting how we go from 1929 to 1939, that's, that's literally the 10 years, and we're going to have this depression that is only going to be reversed in and through uh, the arrival of World War II, ironically. It's sort of funny that a world war is going to help us out of a depression, but sometimes turning outward and recognizing that the world is bigger than you uh, sometimes is the remedy for all of our problems. I'm not sure how many of you know John Dillinger. Uh, John Dillinger is likely the most famous uh, outlaw or villain, uh, gangster, kidnapper, you know, bank robber, uh, murderer uh, in American history. I mean, we have people like Jesse James, and of course I mentioned Pretty Boy Floyd, or Machine Gun Kelly, or Bonnie and Clyde, or Al Capone, because we have the, the gangster movement can also include the mob, technically, if you want to be generous with it. And we have a lot of famous names, and it's interesting because when you hear those names, it's not that they depress you. In American history, we've romanticized it so much where it's sort of fun, actually, to look at it, which is a strange thing, that we could look at something that is so dark and actually have sort of a a gleeful, like, oh, this is great uh, type of feeling. You'd contrast that with Hitler or Stalin. It's very different. Those guys, you could call them gangsters. I mean, they were bad guys and yet they aren't romanticized in American history. We are vulnerable in our history to applaud certain things, even though we're not applauding. It's sort of like watching the Star Wars uh, series and getting all excited about Darth Vader. It's like he was actually possibly everyone's favorite, and that doesn't make a lot of sense considering he's the bad guy, right? You're not supposed to like that guy, and yet there's something about the villain that is very attractive to the human soul. Not exactly sure what dynamic that is, but it's a dangerous one. Romanticizing Dillinger. So on the screen it says, when social taste buds all go south simultaneously, even sauerkraut juice tastes sweet. 
1929, they're guzzling sauerkraut juice. And I mentioned that earlier in, in a different message. I think that was the message that didn't ever uh, make it. Uh, but what a strange phenomenon. You know, we had our wheatgrass phase where we were all getting wheatgrass. And uh, I even went and got some wheatgrass from Jamba Juice uh, quite a few times. And it was terrible. And guess what it tasted like? Grass. And yet, as long as you're convinced that it's healthy for you, you know, you'll find the ability to get it down. And it uh, looked pretty cool doing it, too. Yeah, could I have a wheatgrass? And then you stand there in Jamba Juice, and you go, and then you squish your thing and throw it away. And it's like, how much did you pay for that? Uh, it was about five bucks. You know, it's like, whoa. Uh, and so back then, it was sauerkraut juice. But when social taste buds all go south simultaneously... We are very susceptible. It's called the spirit of the age. The German word for it is the zeitgeist, where there is a correctness that can sweep across a nation and cause you to actually, and everyone knows it without exchanging notes, and they know what is right, and they know what is wrong, and they know what is cool, they know what is hip, and when we went through 2020 and this, this whole sort of idiotic nonsense period, you actually could see it. It'd be fascinating to be able to draw out some of those things, but there was sort of a hip way to walk through uh, the COVID era, which was very socially sensitive. And there was a way you would talk. There was, there was a way you were sensitive to people. There's a way you would wear your mask. And you know, there was a, a certain way that you could show that you were in the in crowd. And then you had your uh, other crowd, your rebel crowd. I don't know if you guys remember the rebel crowd that would refuse to wear a mask and then, sir, you need to put on your mask. Uh, no, I don't wear a mask. Sir, we're asking you again, could you wear your mask? Could you put on a mask? We have a mask for you. I mean, it was a very odd you know, period of time that we all went through, but we all are trying to block out of our brain. Uh, now, so I have some, uh, some fads, some style crazes throughout history that I, I went through and I picked out, and I was like, the weird, I think I did a Google search on the weirdest clothing fads over uh, the last 100 years. And so I have three of them there that I thought were maybe the best representatives. So back in, I think it was the 20s or 30s, I don't remember when the mini bowler hats uh, were, but it was funny, there was a comment on it that says, no head is complimented by a mini bowler hat. <laughs> and it really does, they do look terrible, I have to admit. Uh, and then you have men's jumpsuits. I don't know if that was the 60s, 70s. Obviously, it's color, so it's probably the 70s. And, uh, but those, the, those look nice, don't they? And then how about MC Hammer Pants? Uh, there, was, there was a comment next to it that says, when the guy that came up with it doesn't even look good in it, it's not a good sign. <laughs> Boy, those look terrible. Uh, so when social taste buds go in the wrong direction uh, all at once, I mean, you can actually lose sight of what is true. I mean, it's, it's like the emperor's new clothes. You guys ever heard that story where this emperor wants to be dressed nice and these you know, guys come in to, and they, they're, you know, they're shysters, they're, they're con men, and they, uh, they say that they have created for the emperor this perfect outfit, but it's actually nothing. It's invisible and he can't see it, but everyone is coming in is like, hey, look at how we dressed him and he's naked. And, uh, and everyone's like, oh yeah, it, it, looks, it looks good. Because of the social pressure, people will actually conform and actually lie to themselves because they don't want to be the one that says, well, he doesn't have any clothes on. You don't think he has clothes on? Uh, no, no, I think he does. I think he does. And so the social pressure around you can actually contort you, which is why we are intended as believers to be immune to that social pressure. There was one thing, I think it was A.W. Tozier that said it, uh, that the gospel sets us free from the tyranny of public approval. That there is a control of public approval, that we want to appease the world around us. And the gospel is actually intended to set us free from that contorting pressure. 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20. This is in the context of the people of Israel crying out for a king. And it's interesting their motivation too, but this is, this is in the context of that. Uh, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Every other nation had a king that was sort of their, their symbol of strength. 
and the nation could sort of be proud of them. And that king would lead them to battles and he would work justice in their midst. And it was part of the cool uh, crowd thing. Isn't that just weird to think of a cool crowd issue back in the ancient times? And yet it's always been a thing. There is always what the other nations are doing. And Israel wants to be like the other nations. Samuel even lays it out. He says, guys, you're rejecting God, who is your king, by asking for this. And God has made it clear that if you do get a king, that you will have these repercussions. Your king will do this to you. Your king will do this to you. Basically, like he will make you slaves. He will tax you. He will do all this. It's a big, long list. And they're like, we will have a king. We want to be like the other nations. When you make the decision to compromise in your own life to appease the world around you, you end up with the same type of deficit problem, the same type of enslavement that Israel is going to run into under Saul. Even if it becomes hip, cool, and avant-garde, listen to this, guys, evil is still evil, bad is still bad, and wrong is still wrong. But what if the world applauds it? What if they say, but our new morality is such that it's okay to do this? Or, yeah, I know that the Bible may say that, but that's, you know, outdated. Here is our new morality. Here's the way we decide to uh, esteem uh, things. And, but long and short, it doesn't matter if it's cool, if it's popular in our culture today, if the world wants to totally derange itself to think that, no, this is, this is fine. Evil is still evil. Bad is still bad, and wrong is still wrong. So that brings us to John Dillinger, a bad guy that was cool, hip, and avant-garde. What an interesting thing to hit our culture. It's a bad guy. Everyone knows he's a bad guy. This guy is responsible for killing, uh, what was it, 10 different people? Now, his gang, of course, people that love John Dillinger, was like, he, didn't, he may not have actually killed them. It could have been his gang that killed them. I mean, all this funny stuff that people still will try and defend John Dillinger. However, he was the leader of a gang that is killing people, cops uh, especially. You know, if you're a, a bank teller, you might get a, you know, a, a, a bullet too. And this is wrong, guys. I'm just going to say it right now. It's not a good thing to actually break the law and go on sprees of robbing banks and killing people. And, you know, this isn't good, right? Evil is still evil, even if when he's doing it, he looks really cool. So there's a, a picture of John Dillinger. There's various pictures of him with and without a mustache. And I'm sure these pictures have been studied uh, over and over and over again uh, throughout the years. But this is his mustachioed uh, face. So listen to Art Fishbeck. This guy was a high school student at the time. He lived in Mason City, Iowa. And so this is when he's old, like 88 years old, and he's commenting on, he remembers when the bank robbery came through Mason City. Dillinger came off as a Robin Hood. It was dire times economically, and people needed a hero. And here's Dari Matera. She wrote a book. Uh, I technically, I don't know if it's a guy or a girl. Dari Matera. I don't know. You guys, your guess is as good as mine. But wrote a book on John Dillinger. Uh, he was the Brad Pitt of his day. He had the best cars, the best suits, and he died with a woman on each arm. I mean, what guy doesn't want to be John Dillinger? That's a dangerous statement when you say that. Because John Dillinger isn't going in the right direction. His life is going south. And so when we start esteeming that, you're esteeming the wrong thing. Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. One of the vulnerabilities is the Great Depression at this time. And a lot of people felt like banks had let them down, that these these bank uh, owners and these, I mean, just the banks are the man to start with, to go with one of my messages previously. Uh, but it's the system. It's that which oppresses us. And so the bank and the government. So if you're going to rob a bank, a lot of the people in our society were like, good for him. Good for him. I mean, those banks are robbing us. So someone should stick it to the banks. And so it's a weird thing when you begin to applaud, even subconsciously, where you're not going to say it out loud, but you're sort of cheering John Dillinger on. And something weird is happening in our souls when we, we begin to cheer on that which is evil to succeed. 
And the Bible is very explicit in that. Do not cheer on evil to succeed. That is not the right side to cheer on. Psalm 17, 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them are alike an abomination to the Lord. So when you justify the wicked and say, well, you know what, what he did was reasonable if you think about it, you know, I mean, it's, it's okay. He's just sort of balancing the equity of our culture. Or if you condemn the just, either one, these are abominations to the Lord. Malachi 2, 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what ways have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. See, this is what's happened in our modern Christianity, where we have a softness to the edge of our discernment, and where we have this confusion that has entered into the morality of our culture, and we are accepting it into the church. Instead of being the standard to say, actually, that's, that's wrong. The culture's morality is being accepted by the church. It's like, well, if the culture deems that to be appropriate and right, well, who are we as the church to judge that? When in actuality, we as the church have been given the word of God to discern and to help the culture understand right from wrong and to be able to separate good from evil. And when we don't do that, we end up like this. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. That's a mentality that we have allowed to creep into a whole sector of the church. And the Lord delights in them. Well, what if they're doing evil? That, that isn't something the Lord delights in. Luke eleven thirty five. 35, therefore take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. It's a very interesting statement, guys. You think about that. You know how you're like, I see something. I see clearly. Oh, I have revelation. Well, make sure that that revelation isn't darkness. Because our, our culture is seeing things today. We're, we're having breakthroughs. We're being set free from old moorings. Are we sure we're being set free or are we actually entering into a greater bondage? Luke 16, 15. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Just because something is highly esteemed among men does not mean it is pleasing to God. In fact, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to our God. So this leads us to John Dillinger. Now, it's, it's hard because the way I'm starting this message out, you could think that I'm really against John Dillinger, you know, and I'm just like, this guy is just bad news. You need to hate him. And that's actually not my take. I have a, a heart for John Dillinger. It's a strange thing. You'll see that come out in this, which sort of matches the whole series where I throw a curveball at you guys. And right when you think you have me pegged of where I'm going with this, then I go in a different direction. But John Dillinger is one of those guys, I wish I could have intersected his life and I could have had a conversation with him. And because I actually sense, and I have reason for this, that he wanted out of his life and his lifestyle but the momentum was so strong and he couldn't figure out a way out. And that like burdens me. When I see that desire for repentance, but I don't see an avenue or a, a way for someone to repent. And that's part of his story and it burdens me. So I'm just sort of preparing you to say, I'm not actually just against this man. Of course, I'm not a supporter of the evil. I'm not a supporter of wickedness. I'm not a supporter of what's going on in and through his life. But I wouldn't be supportive of probably a lot of what you guys have done in your past too. But I love you. And I'm interested in you guys being set free. And of course, that's just how we as the church function. We don't cheer on evil, but we are interested in seeing people repent and come into a place of freedom and life and hope. So John Dillinger, he is actually going to be the first one the FBI determines to be public enemy number one. Now, I gave the message uh, last Friday, I believe it was, called Pretty Boy Floyd. And Pretty Boy Floyd, when John Dillinger, uh, <clears throat> spoiler alert, dies, uh, but when John Dillinger dies, then Pretty Boy Floyd becomes public enemy number one. So John Dillinger is the first one to have the honor of carrying such a name. It's just interesting to call him public enemy number one because the public really liked him. <laughs> so it's sort of a, a funny statement, but you see what the FBI is attempting to do. He's trying to phrase everything to make it clear good and evil. And the FBI is laboring. Uh, by the way, I've mentioned a couple Hoovers in the past few messages, and I probably should explain. 
that Herbert Hoover was a president of the United States, and he was elected in 1929 and is going to be defeated in, 19, in the 1933 election, actually late 1932 maybe it was, I don't remember what the, the date was, uh, for uh, president by, presidency by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And I was talking about him, remember I couldn't say Herbert Hoover very well? That's a president. Then we have a guy named J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover is very different than Herbert Hoover, uh, and J. Edgar Hoover is the director of the FBI, one of the most famous men in history, far more famous than Herbert Hoover, because he is going to have, in many cases, more power than even a president is the way it's going to feel, and he's going to be in office for upwards of like 50 years. I mean, it's just remarkable in a government office for like 50 years. He is going to, I think, have like eight presidents that are, he's going to work with. I mean, just a remarkable uh, storyline. By the way, that's different than Hoover vacuum cleaners. Okay, so we have a lot of Hoovers in American history, and I just need you to separate those out. I probably should have them on the screen, like all three of those, and have a vacuum in the far you know, uh, picture. <laughs> he's like, that is different than these. <clears throat> so John Dillinger, public enemy number one. So he is going to be arrested at the age of, oh, it's early 20s. And he is going to be robbing a convenience store. The convenience store doesn't have any money and no cash on hand. He ends up with nothing and he shoots a, you know, the bullet into the ceiling. That's about it. And he's going to end up getting 10 years for it. And he is going to be very upset over that. And a lot of the community is even upset because they want this guy to have a chance and they realize that something's off in him, but to give him 10 years in the Indiana State Penitentiary for an unsuccessful convenience store robbery just seemed excessive. And in his mind, it's excessive. Remember we talked about Pretty Boy Floyd? You kick him and he gets mad. And then he gets, so he does something again, you kick him, he gets madder. And so what you have is a walking chunk of mean mad. And Dillinger, whether or not I would call him angry, he's still vengeful, and he wants to get back at the system. So when he's in the Indiana State Penitentiary, he's meeting all the bad guys and learning how robbery works and learning the art of the trade of criminal activity, because he wasn't very good at it, obviously. He, he attempted to rob a convenience store, failed miserably, got nothing out of it, and ends up with 10 years in prison. I mean, think about that. That's a very unsuccessful career as a bad guy. And so this is back when his early 20s. Doesn't have his mustache, by the way. Did you guys notice that? So Don, John Dillinger is going to become not just uh, public enemy number one, but public cool guy number one. Have you guys ever heard of James Dean? Yeah, that's sort of a takeoff of John Dillinger. In other words, what you have is this cool guy, you know, that knows how to have the cigarette hanging out of his mouth just right. Uh, that knows how to look at the camera with the smoldering gaze and laugh, and sort of like, I'm not intimidated by life. I'm not intimidated by you. He'll laugh at the police. He'll laugh at the challenges of life. It's very intriguing to the American people who are under this weight of an oppression through the Great Depression. And they like to see this smiling villain. This happy villain is very intriguing to them. It's like, I want to be that guy. Think about it. What that one lady said, he was the Brad Pitt of his day. He was handsome. He was dressed nice. He drove the best cars, and he had a girl on both hands when he, or on both arms when he died. I mean, it's like, if I'm going to die, says most guys on planet Earth, I want to die like that. And that is a dangerous bait that is being presented before our culture, and we are fallen for it. So here's just some candid shots that, I don't know where this collection came from, but uh, of John Dillinger. So you can get sort of a little, there's one with a mustache down there. You guys see that one? Uh, <clears throat> but most of them don't have the mustache. Now there's, can you see guys why this guy is so popular right there? He has this pretty uh, girlfriend named Billy, and I've, I've heard her name pronounced two different ways, Frechette and Frechetti. I think it's Frechette. Uh, but... And, you know, he has his uh, machine gunner. I don't know if that's a Tommy gun. I actually am not a gun expert. And then, you know, his nice car. And he can pose for a photo and then distribute that out to all of his fans. And, and everyone's just like, I, look at this guy. He has it all together. Everyone else is in the Depression. Meanwhile, he's raked in somewhere around $500,000 in this time. Now, that's in the middle of the 30s. This is like tens of millions uh, that he has robbed, and he, I mean, he's living high on the hog. This guy's doing well. I mean, hey, you might want to take a page out of his uh, playbook. 
So John Dillinger and the release from Indiana Penitentiary in 1933. So he's going to be released in the penitentiary after, after, it was like eight and a half years that he'd been in there out of his 10-year sentence. And the first thing he's going to do is <clears throat> start doing bad things. You know, instead of learning your lesson from being, you know, in uh, prison, he is going to have studied and understood what he can do to get back at the system. And so I have a little video clip here, and we'll see how well this translates, but it's extremely interesting. It's like made back in these, this time period that actually explains what is happening in John Dillinger's life, okay? And so it'll fill in a piece of the story. You might need to, oh, there it goes. Within three months of his release in 1933, they had robbed their first bank at Dalesville, Indiana. This raid set the pattern for the future, including a graceful leap over a six-foot counter by the dashing Dillinger, in the manner of his screen hero, Douglas Fairbanks. In four months, they robbed five more banks, but Dillinger had been captured. He was being held in Lima, Ohio, but was not too worried. He was confident that help was on the way. He had good reason. With part of the proceeds from the bank robbers, he had smuggled a barrel of guns and ammunition to friends he had left in Michigan City Penitentiary. With this arsenal, ten of them now shot their way out and headed towards Lima to free their liberator. Among them were the legendary handsome Harry Pierpont, who had already tried four escapes. Charlie Mackley, whose bank robbing technique was to pretend to be a director of the bank, and Russell Clark, younger than the others, but already an experienced robber. At Lima Jail, all three posed as police officers. They asked to see Dillinger. But Sheriff Jess Saba was suspicious. Let me see your credentials, he demanded. Here they are, replied Pierpont, producing his gun and firing. He killed the sheriff, located the key, and released his friend. John Dillinger asked casually, what kept you? They raced out of a side door and into a waiting car. Dillinger had his ideal gang, and its first raids were on police gun rooms in Auburn and Peru, Indiana. Now well armed, they robbed the American Bank and Trust Company in Racine, Wisconsin, of $27,000. Joined by Dillinger's girlfriend, Billy Frechette, and Pierpont's Mary Kinder in East Chicago, Indiana, they were scooping $20,000 into bags when the police arrived. Patrolman William O'Malley fired four shots at Dillinger, who shouted, You asked for it, and shot the policeman dead. They got away in a fast car. Dillinger had killed his first man. As the gang crisscrossed the Midwestern states, in Dillinger's first spree of robberies, the American public turned a villain into a hero. The handsome, athletic outlaw seemed to be more of a Robin Hood than an Al Capone. Along with pretty boy Floyd and Bonnie and Clyde, he appeared to embody the hit-the-rich heroics of the legendary Jesse James. The disillusioned public of the Depression years felt that the banks, with their high interest rates and eager foreclosings, could well afford the losses. A shocked President Roosevelt appealed for a change of attitude. Can be stopped. And it will be stopped. Dillinger's supporters were shattered when he was arrested at this house in Tucson, Arizona, and disarmed by a local posse. Fire had broken out at the Congress Hotel, where the gang was staying. They gave the firemen a $12 tip for rescuing one of their trunks, which contained enough guns and ammunition to equip a small army. The generous tip made the firemen remember them, and when they saw the picture of the wanted gang, they were able to identify them as Clark, Mackley, Pierpont, and Dillinger. What followed was more like a movie premiere than the capture of a real-life killer. Every state where Dillinger's gang committed crimes was anxious to extradite them, and legal battles loomed ahead. Indiana moved fastest, and before a writ of habeas corpus could be granted to keep the gang in Arizona, its lawyers laid on aircraft to get Dillinger securely back there to be tried for murder. 
he became one of the first prisoners to be transported by air. To this day, prisoners in the United States are still routinely moved only by rail or road. The scenes were just as extraordinary in Chicago, where he was met by a convoy of 85 police in 13 cars, with 12 motorcycle outriders. Thousands of people lined the streets, hoping for a glimpse of their hero, the law's villain. So he is going to end up in Indiana, in Crown Point, Indiana. And it's a huge media sensation. And the, uh, even the sheriff that was killed, his wife has now taken over the, the jail, the prison, and she wants to pose with him. And they want to keep him there. Instead of taking him to the state penitentiary, they want to keep him there for media reasons. They're getting a lot of attention. And John Dillinger is happy to oblige, and he's in all the, the photos, and uh, he actually exclaims to them, I am going to escape. And they laugh, and they smile, and they take more pictures. And sure enough, I mean, the story is quite dramatic, which you can only imagine if he's already a hero. Imagine how it's going to translate now when he escapes the unescapable uh, jailhouse. They have men all around for public purposes, all the people come around, they see all these uh, you know, guards out front with their guns, and no one's going to escape this. And somehow, uh, we don't know exactly the full story, because Dillinger's not around to share it. He got his lawyer to either bribe someone to get him a gun, uh, or he whittled a gun, which is the classic story that he whittled a gun, it looked like a gun, and then took hostage, you know, some guard, locked him in the cell and escaped. And he actually is going to escape this, this jail. He escapes two different prisons uh, in his time, which is only adding to his legend, if you could imagine. So this guy is as cool, as debonair, as suave, and as smiley as they come. I mean, everyone is like falling in love with this guy. So here's that uh, photo. So this is actually from uh, the Chicago paper. It doesn't translate well, a black and white photo over the years, but they smiled when he said he'd escape. And uh, it's extremely embarrassing for all these Crown Point uh, officials after he escapes. So after this, they're going to go on a spree of bank robberies, the John Dillinger gang. And uh, so it says bank robberies and more bank robberies. And then something is going to happen in this man's life, and this is, of course, what I'm trying to build towards, is I'm going to call this the repentance. This man is carried in a wave of bad behavior. I don't know how many of you have ever found yourself in a wave where you actually don't want to go in the direction that you're going, and yet there is so much momentum behind it that the enemy is trying to convince you you can't change direction. And one of the things I've oftentimes said about uh, the enemy is sin, one of its great challenges, if you were to look at it from the enemy's side, is that it does not have breaks. And at a certain point, sin is no longer pleasurable. The season of sin that is pleasurable ends. And that actually leads to a vulnerability in the sinner to desire out. And if the devil could contort sin in such a way where it was always pleasurable and it never ran out of pleasure and it was not just a season, he would be very well off. But not only can he not keep that pleasure going, but he also can't keep the ramifications of it. He has no breaks on sin. So it keeps enlarging, enlarging, enlarging. That's what you're seeing in Dillinger's life. And there is something that is going to take place in his life that is going to cause us from the outside in history to be able to look in and say, he wanted out. He actually wanted to change this, but the persona was carrying him on. His gang was carrying him on. And just the sin that he was used to, this is the only thing he's ever known, is carrying him on, but he wants out. And so in this time, he's actually going to well, he's being hunted, even his public enemy number one, uh, and he's going to come back to his father in Mooresville. He never had a relationship with his father, and he is going to have 
a time of repentance with his father, and he's going to make things right with his dad, and his dad's going to make things right with him. And so this is going to be in his hometown, Mooresville, Indiana, April 5th, 1934, where he's going to arrive back. This is going to become very scandalous uh, and because the police are looking everywhere for him. They knew, would have never expected him to return home because he had no relationship with his father. And his father's like a good, strong Christian man. Whether or not he was a very likable guy, he seemed like a very stern uh, man. But he was a good Christian man, moral man, who you know, did not stand for what John Dillinger was doing. So there's no way John Dillinger is going to come back there unless he was coming back there to make things right. And that's what his dad is going to testify of, is that he actually came back to make things right. He wants out of this life, but you have to give him space. You guys are hunting him. So I have a clip. This is one of the coolest things. I don't know. I don't want to say the coolest thing you'll ever see, because that's ridiculous. There's going to be plenty of things beyond this. But this is a really neat thing. This is his dad making a public statement asking for mercy to his first son, okay? Call it the Father's Appeal. His name is John Wilson Dillinger. And I don't know when this was made, but it was somewhere between April 5th and, 18, and, and April 24th, 1934. I'm John Dillinger's father, and I feel like that if John was given a parole or exonerated for what he has done. I don't think he's done near as much as they claim he has. But I think he'd, uh, if he's given the chance, would go straight. And uh, as far as the family reunion that he claimed we had, we just have to have a Sunday dinner and no uh, preparations made only for the dinner, but we didn't know that John was coming. John just happened to drop in on so John is going to drop in on them, and he's, you know, because they were saying, hey, you're harboring a fugitive. It's like, hey, we were just having Sunday dinner, and John showed up. And so instead, Billy Frechette is going to be imprisoned for harboring a fugitive, and so John's girlfriend is now going to be imprisoned. Now, at this juncture, what you see is a man who very likely desires to repent, but is being hunted by the FBI. Now, here's where this interesting tension comes in. The FBI is young in its building reputation. And J. Edgar Hoover, for, he has some positive qualities. He also has a vulnerability, and that is just like John Dillinger is craving fame, and just like he, John Dillinger could crave looking a certain way to the public, so does J. Edgar Hoover. And so does his lead G-man named Melvin Purvis. And so what you're going to see in this storyline is it's almost like they can't forgive. They can't give any grace because this is what will make them famous. Actually, you can even look back in history and say the FBI became famous in killing John Dillinger. And yet, at the very moment that they would have had that video, it's like, could you give him space? He doesn't want to keep doing this. It's like, you have to make a choice. Are you going to go after the fame of taking down this arch villain, public enemy number one? I mean, we're not going to play a game and actually give mercy, are we? So Little Bohemia is a famous story in FBI history. Uh, and we could call, this is April 23rd, 1934. And, and I have the subtitle, it says, In the Wild Escape Out the Second Story Window. So this is one of these huge, massive blunders for the FBI, where they know where he is because the, uh, the proprietor of the Little Bohemia Lodge, which is, it was in the off-season upper uh, peninsula, Michigan, and that's where Dillinger and his gang and a whole bunch of girls are hanging out. And so they get the tip and they're making their way up there. And as they were approaching, the dogs uh, hear them coming and start barking, which then warns the, uh, the bad guys. And then they sneak out. They left all the girls behind and snuck out. And the, the FBI ended up killing these two guys that had been drinking that night at the lodge, had nothing to do with the Dillinger gang. And we're just driving away and they ended up shooting them. Uh, and so it's very embarrassing for the FBI. And Dillinger gets away again only adding to his legend. Now, now you have to recognize the, the FBI has uh, mud on their face. They don't look very good because of this guy. So now there's an anger that has just grown to uh, beyond imagination. 
uh, Manhattan melodrama, I'm going to call it the end of the road. So what's going to happen? And I'm skipping a lot of the story. It's a great story. It really is a very fascinating story. But John Dillinger is, I mean, they, have, they are going to double the price on his head. I think it was 10000 I think they're going to make it 20000 uh, And that's a lot of money back then. And so the reward, if anyone would help find and capture John Dillinger. And so he's in Chicago, Illinois, July 22nd, 1934. And he is going to go to a movie with two women. Remember the two women on his arms? Uh, and one of them is uh, a Romanian immigrant, and she doesn't want to be uh, sent back to uh, Romania. So she makes a deal with the FBI that she will help uh, them get John Dillinger because she was going to be at one of the two women, and she was the lady in red. So if you've ever heard that term, she was going to be dressed in red when they came out of the theater, and that was going to be the trigger, the note, uh, that that's uh, who you're looking for. And they went to see an actual movie, a Clark Gable movie named Manhattan Melodrama, which is about gangsters, ironically. So here's the FBI official report uh, in their records. And by the way, I said uh, FBI.org uh, the other day when I was going through it. If you go to FBI.org, you're not going to find anything. That isn't a website. FBI.gov. Sorry about that. But this is the official FBI record on John Dillinger. How we caught him. Anna Sage, a friend of Dillinger's girlfriend, Polly Hamilton, told us that Dillinger planned to take her and Hamilton to see a movie. We joined law enforcement in staking out the area around the theater. When Dillinger emerged from the show, we followed him down the street. Dillinger reached for his pistol, but agents fired and killed him. The story's a lot more exciting than that, but that's the FBI version of it. Uh, just sort of scrub it as clean as you possibly can. So Dillinger, I'm gonna call him the two-sided coin. Heads, bad is still bad even if it wears cool sunglasses or knows how to have the cigarette hang just right out of its mouth. Tails, bad can still be redeemed if it comes to the cross. There's two sides to this storyline. And one is that you have to remember that bad is still bad. And it doesn't matter if it's cool. It's still bad. It's still wrong. And the other side is bad can still repent if it comes to the cross. God's judgment isn't so hasty. And I would say as hasty as the FBI is. This is a public thing. You, if you studied it at a deeper level, you'd recognize that this is going to make heroes. If you can take out John Dillinger, this is going to make the most famous men in America at the time. John Dillinger was one of the most famous, and then the people that take him out are going to be the most famous. And the man who is going to be responsible, the key G-man of the 1930s, it's going to be behind taking out Pretty Boy Floyd, taking out Babyface Nelson, taking out John Dillinger is a guy named Melvin Purvis. So this, this is an important statement I want you to meditate upon. God's judgment isn't so hasty. Mercy is always God's first desire. If there is even an an inkling, a, a crack, an avenue where mercy can creep in, God's mercy will flood into it, always. And so I am a big fan of justice, and I'm a big fan of a good system of justice where when we say we're going to do something, we do it. And we're not soft with justice. At the same time, I, even though I don't want to be soft with justice, I want to be strong with mercy. Any nation that is not strong in mercy is, is vulnerable. And you take nations like uh, Hitler's Germany and Stalin's uh, Soviet Russia, those were nations that were not wealthy in mercy. And you don't want to be like that. One would be like the arch-conservative picture, like Hitler, and one would be the arch-liberal picture, like Stalin. And so it doesn't matter which political lens you wear, you can go either extreme, but if you do not have mercy as a core uh, principle of any governmental system, you're vulnerable. So I just have an interesting question for you. Which is worse? Because what would happen is bad guys would have notches in their belt for how many good guys they killed. And good guys would have notches in their belt for how many bad guys they killed. And so I'm just going to ask, to have a notch in your belt, which is worse, to have a notch in your belt for every good guy you kill or to have a notch in your belt for every bad guy you kill? I know, it sounds like a trick question, doesn't it? Because obviously the good guy who's taking out the bad guy is at least on the side of good and righteous. But there's something wrong, and I'm just going to see if I can pinpoint it for your understanding. There's something wrong when a good guy, and I'm going to put quotes around that, is bragging by putting notches 
on how many bad guys he kills. There's something about that, and this happens in war as well. When you start to relish the fact that you have killed, then something has gone off inside of you. I'm not saying that there isn't such a thing as a just war or that there isn't a right time to use a weapon and to actually kill someone. That's a very debatable point, right? Because there's different people that come from more of a non-aggression standpoint in here. And so I'm not wanting to draw a line on that. All I'm saying is there's a reasonable arena which that could be discussed. But then there's something else where it's like when you get a certain fame and notoriety and plaudits every time you kill a bad guy and you're keeping track of it and want the public to keep track of it too, something has gone wrong. So there's two sorts of men throughout history. Ones that find every excuse to reject and those that find every reason to rescue. So if you see someone that's bad, then you will always consider them bad. If you've ever seen Les Miserables and there's a character named Javert, who when Jean Valjean, who's sort of the key character of that storyline, he was a criminal. And so in Javert's mind, he's always a criminal. And once you have that mentality that once a criminal, always a criminal, there's no repentance, there's no redemption possible, that's a certain type of person. There's another type of person, and that's those that find every reason to rescue. That they are seeking every avenue to give mercy and to see someone recover from their ailment. It's two different types of people. And this other one is ones that find every reason to condemn and those that find every reason to restore. So it depends on which lenses you are wearing. Are you looking for every excuse to condemn someone? Hey, but they did this too. I mean, we can't forget this. Or are you looking for every avenue to restore? Now we could ask the question, what sort of man was or is Jesus? Is he one that seeks excuses to destroy or one that will go to whatever means necessary to rescue? I know, it's not a trick question. It's very obvious in Scripture. He's not looking for an opportunity to condemn us. He's looking for an opportunity to rescue us. If he was looking for an opportunity to condemn us, we're gone a long time ago, guys. But our God is seeking every avenue to rescue us, to give us mercy. This is important for your souls to know this because I know how the enemy speaks. He's a condemner and he's always yammering about how God has given up on you, God doesn't want you anymore, look at all that you've done, there's no hope for you. That is the exact opposite of God. God is looking for every opportunity. When God is dealing with your soul, you know what his answer for your soul is? Mercy. And what if you reject the mercy? You know what he's gonna give you? Mercy. And what if you reject the mercy the second time? He's going to give you mercy. And he's going to give you mercy. And he's going to give you mercy. If you continue to reject the mercy and you breathe your last, what do you receive? Judgment. But what are you receiving the whole while? Mercy, 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 mercy. When you breathe your last, you are going to receive judgment if you reject the mercy of God. But you are in a season when God is desirous to give you mercy. That mercy comes with correction. It comes with a loving, swift kick to the rear end. God is not just patting you on the back and encouraging you in your sin. But when you repent, his mercy is there to kindle. When you turn and you humble yourself, his mercy is ready. And that's critical for us to recognize. Because in this story, there is no mercy for this man. This man may want to turn. Even his father is going to go on public record. It wasn't very easy to make a film back then. And he is going to make an appeal to say, let my son repent. Let him change his ways. Could you give him space to actually come in and make things right? No. If you knew what was on the line in this time, you know for the FBI, there's no way they're going to do that. This is the legend of the FBI that's hanging in the balance here. James 2.13, this is God's economy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Ezekiel 33.11, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Dillinger, turn from your wicked ways. I have no delight in seeing you die. However, there were those that had a delight in seeing him die.
die. And that's more of what I want to circle as part of the core of our history, is we have had a delight in seeing the death of the wicked. And I mean, to go into this at a deeper level, when these villains would die, they would be on public display and tens of thousands of people would visit to see their dead bodies. And then in all the movies at that time, they would have those pre-run things that they would go before the movies and they would show all of the, the villains. They would show you know, so Al Capone and Alcatraz, Machine Gun Kelly and Alcatraz, Pretty Boy Floyd, John Dillinger's dead bodies, and they would zoom around them so everyone could see it. This was a delight in the death of the wicked. And I'm saying this isn't of the nature of our king. Proverbs 21, 13, whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Micah 7, 8, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. So Melvin Purvis, I'm going to call him the most famous G-man of the 30s. It's sort of hard to say that he was more famous than J. Edgar Hoover. But in this time, he was. Because he was the one responsible for taking out John Dillinger. He was the one responsible for taking out Pretty Boy Floyd. He was the one responsible for taking out Babyface Nelson. And so, I mean, that, that's like, that's extraordinary, guys. What this man is going to do. So here's a picture of Melvin uh, Purvis. Uh, and you know, classic G-Man uh, right there. So there was, I think it was something called the Literary Digest. Every year uh, it had a ranking of the 10 most famous uh, Americans in each year. And in 1934, the most famous American was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And the second most famous American was a guy named Melvin Purvis. Remember what's happened in 1934? John Dillinger's going to die. Pretty Boy Floyd's going to die. And Babyface Nelson's going to die at the hands of Melvin Purvis. And this is the champion of our culture. So I read this to you during the Pretty Boy Floyd thing, but I want you to hear it now that you know who Melvin Purvis is, because before I didn't introduce you to who he was. Chester Smith was credited with shooting Pretty Boy Floyd first, and he stated that he had deliberately wounded Floyd but not killed him. I knew Melvin Purvis couldn't hit him, so I dropped him with two shots from my 32 Winchester rifle. According to Smith's account, Pretty Boy Floyd fell and did not regain his footing, and Chester Smith then disarmed him. At that point, Melvin Purvis ran up and ordered, back away from that man, I want to talk to him. Melvin Purvis questioned Pretty Boy Floyd briefly and received curses in reply, so he ordered Agent Herman Hollis to fire into him. Hollis then shot Pretty Boy Floyd at point-blank range with a submachine gun killing him. The interviewer asked if there was a cover-up by the FBI, and Chester Smith responded, sure was, because they didn't want to get it out that he'd been killed that way. Now, again, there's debate over if that, this is how it actually happened. There's all sorts of angst in the FBI history uh, over this. But long and short, we have something that is dark on both sides. Bad guys and good guys behaving bad. And that's part of what I would say needs to be in a sensitivity point for us when we hear, when we see things like a BLM movement today, we see things like this defund the police thing today, which for most of us in here, we're so incredulous towards that. We're like, you've got to be kidding me. Are they serious? But when you, if you were to do a deep study, a deep dive on the FBI, you would understand why there's a lack of trust. Now, it's funny because the FBI is under a greater scrutiny today than it has been in a long time. But you would understand why there's a lack of trust in a professional police force. Because if that pro professional police force goes corrupt, what if it behaves bad under the banner of doing good? You have a vulnerability. Dillinger and Purvis both died by a bullet to the head. You know that Melvin Purvis is going to die the same way Dillinger died, which is a great irony. And Melvin is going to be Melvin Purvis is going to be responsible for a lot of dead people, just as Dillinger is. And I get the the sense that Melvin Purvis really struggled internally with this. That when you behave this way, just as you, you're going to see John Dillinger wanting to repent. I would, I'd almost say the same thing about Melvin Purvis, and I have a similar compassion for this man because under the banner of doing good, he is going to do a lot of evil. 
And it's sort of hard to know how to weigh that because there's a right way of doing good where you don't do evil in doing good. There's a, it's like parenting. You can parent and you can correct your children, but you could overcorrect. And you can harm your children in the, in the process of correcting your children. It's very easy to do. The same thing is true for a police force. You can be doing good and you can be correcting, you can be arresting, you can be addressing situations, you can even shoot your gun and injure someone. You could even kill them in the process of doing good, all within the banner of that which is righteous. But you can also cross that line. And when you're telling someone to take their machine gun and shoot it into a man to kill him, and then you notch it on your belt as one of your famous victories to the public, that's not good, guys. And so Melvin Purvis is going to die by a bullet uh, to the head, and it's self-inflicted. Micah 6.8, he has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, listen to this, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. If we're going to do this right, I think we need a reset on some of these things, and we need to recognize that our desire isn't to just see bad guys condemned. Even though condemnation is the deserving outcome for every bad behavior. It is. That's the kingdom of heaven speaking right there. That's the bad news. But we're all deserving of that. Our desire is to intervene in a Dillinger's life and even in a Purvis's life to recognize that they're caught. They're caught in a bad pattern and a bad behavior. And so it's interesting in American history because oftentimes we will want to stand against one, like a Dillinger, and say, well, evil. And we'll want to stand for another, like Purvis. When I would say both are struggling. Both are entrapped and both need the grace of God. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, Proverbs 14.27. The fear of the Lord leads to life, Proverbs 19.23. Now I'm going to add this one in. And that is the fear of the Lord is to love what God loves. Christian history, one of the famous phrases for what the fear of the Lord is, which I love this definition, is to hate what God hates and to love what God loves. And so in this tension that we have in this storyline, this is the exact issue. It's a tension. It's a tension of what we hate and what we love. Because you're supposed to hate what God hates. What does God hate? Evil, sin, wickedness. That's what he hates. But what does he love? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, some people want to translate world as being, oh, those are the elect. Those are the ones that God had selected. Well, it doesn't actually say that. It just says God so loved the world, which as far as we can tell, if you're going to be honest with the text of scripture, means he loves us, even in our unloveliness. And though he hates the sin, he seems to have a love that he has placed on us and he desires us to be saved. And he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He desires the wicked to come to repentance. And so if we're going to fear God, because this is one of the attributes that seems to be missing in our culture today, is the fear of God. It's missing in the church. We don't hate what God hates anymore. We accept what God hates into our midst and into our life. And we don't love what God loves there's a whole bunch of people in this earth that God loves and we hate as the church. And that's precisely, I'd say, a cornerstone point of this entire series so far. It's like, uh, guys, we're supposed to love that person. If this was a mission field, that would be our, our missionary target. Yeah, they're conspiring to destroy us. Yeah, they're undermining our constitutional republic. Yeah, they're throwing our history into the toilet. Yeah, they're rewriting everything. But guess what? God, in the meantime, is interested in their soul. And maybe like Dillinger, they are at a place where they crave to go in a different direction. But the wave of sin is carrying them forward. Who's there to actually intervene and say, I see what you need in your soul. Let me give you truth that can set you free. That's us, guys. If we follow the trends of picking up our gun like Melvin Purvis and taking out that enemy, well, we're going to end up dying by the same bullet. You see, that isn't the way that our soul is set free. We need to function in the loving grace of Jesus Christ, and that is our manner, which means we love a John Dillinger, not because he's cool, 
but because he needs Jesus. And Jesus says, I love that man. He needs me. We love a Melvin Purvis, even though he's misusing his authority. And I would say that. I don't think he's using his authority well. But God still loves him. And so on both sides of the ledger, let's make sure we do this right. So here's our final statement. Hate what is evil. Yes. But don't forget to love the life that God loves. Father, I pray that you would instruct us in righteousness, that you would train us in your way, and that you would continue to show us how in our history, in this country, we can correct that which is off, and we can set aright that which is crooked. Lord, that we would be revived afresh, that the church of Jesus Christ would become healthy, and that we would truly be able to showcase Jesus to a lost and dying world. It's in the precious name that we pray this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.